Greetings, this is The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things books and publishing. I'm Dean Karpowitz. I'm Ryan Spence. I'm Samantha Elberth. I'm Amanda Ledesma. And I'm Jackie Kenny. Today on the show, our interview with Caitlin Starling, author of The Luminous Dead. Caitlin Starling is a writer of horror-tinged speculative fiction of all flavors. Her first novel, The Luminous Dead, is out now from Harper Voyager. It tells the story of a caver on a foreign planet who finds herself trapped, with only her wits and the unreliable voice on her radio to help her back to the surface. Caitlin also works in narrative design for interactive theater and games, and has been paid to design body parts. She's always on the lookout for new ways to inflict insomnia. Find more of her work at www.caitlinstarling.com and follow her at cstarling on Twitter. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, happy to be here. Um, we all, the whole crew here, read The Luminous Dead and, and loved it. And early on in the novel, uh, Jire uh, learns that M uh, has complete control over her body via her ability to control her caver suit. Uh, this is a concern throughout the novel, even after there's a measure of trust between the two. Uh, considering, like, I couldn't help but thinking as I was reading about our, like, contemporary politics and how we've been sort of consumed um, with women and their rights of control over their bodies. So I thought it made this aspect of the novel rather poignant. Can you talk a little bit about the way the novel comments on bodily autonomy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I didn't have specifically reproductive freedom in mind when I was writing this. Um, I was thinking a little bit broader in terms of how workers sign over essentially their health, both physical and mental, to their employers, whether directly, like in the military, or indirectly, just every job we ever do. Um, you know, it's it's been sort of a part of the human condition for a really long time that you know, we know that doing any kind of work, whether for ourselves or others, puts us at some kind of risk, even if it's just it's using up time of our life that we don't get back. But we make trade-offs in how much we're willing to hand over, especially to other people, especially to other people who aren't family members, who aren't people that we directly trust. And, you know, starting with especially the Industrial Revolution, it becomes a major worldwide thing. But, you know, even before that, it's not always a conscious, it's not always a, a, a choice at all. Sometimes it's slavery. Sometimes it's all these sorts of forms of control that humans exert over one another to put them in situations where they must give over, like you said, their reproductive freedom or they have to give over their labor. They have to give over their lives and their bodies for the service of other people. And um, they're really obviously a very touchy subject. It's a very nuanced subject, and I don't claim to be at all an expert in it. But it is, uh, I would say it's a pretty common thing that gets dealt with, especially in science fiction, um, especially mostly in dystopian works mm -hmm. where we're talking about, you know, even so much, you, you know, just thinking of Minority Report, the government can see what you're going to do and is that actually good or not, you know. Um, and on this, it's a, it's sort of on a micro scale because it's only between two people, but it's so all-encompassing that it colors, like you said, every aspect of the relationship with one another, even once they're working together as supposed equals, mm -hmm. they're never actually equal because 
Jire is always the one in physical danger, and M always has the ability to intervene, whether to help or to hurt. And that dynamic, you can't, they can't ignore it, and the reader can't ignore it. Right, even if even after there's that level of trust, right, between mm-hmm. the two, later on in the book, she's still, Jire is still resisting. Right, and, and Jire, in some ways, needs M there to stay safe, but at the same time, um, you know, we could argue that in a perfect world, Jire would have taken back full control of her suit and M would have given up all ability to help her, but then we run into situations later in the novel where, yeah, that's great in theory, but sometimes you do, you know, she needs help, and the only way she can get that help is use is through the tools that have put her in this horrible situation in the first place. And that, very rightly, is a very fraught situation for her because, you know, yes, she now she now trusts more or less M. Yes, she more or less understands what she's gotten into by that point. But, you know, it's um, how how much spoilers am I? How many spoilers am I allowed to do? Can I spoil the whole book? Yeah, as many as you want. Okay, I'm not used to doing um, interviews where I can actually just freely talk about the fact that Jire at one point has to beg M to cut her arm off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, it's, and it's at this point where, like, you know, it, it gets into this really murky area of she needs to tell M to do this great form of bodily harm against her. And M is in the situation of, is it ethical for me to say yes? Is it mm-hmm. ethical of me to say no? I have, I'm emotionally bound up in this question, this problem, too, and I don't know what I want to do. Yeah. But it's my, it comes down to my decision, and that's the flip side of, you know, if, if someone has signed over, in this case, it's, you know, I want to make a distinction. I'm not talking about slavery anymore. <laughs> if right, if right. someone has voluntarily given over some part of their bodily autonomy to a custodian, what are what are the responsibilities of that custodian in return and what is owed basically by an employer to their employee in this situation. Yeah. There's a measure near the end. There's well, um, there's definitely a measure of guilt once they're on a first name, you know, it's no longer caver. Um, Mm -hmm. and they're on the first name basis. We can tell M starts to tell her story and we can see that there is a sort of moral, moral dilemma after moral dilemma for her. Yeah. And, um, you know, Jire doesn't just need M for how she helps Jire with her suit in navigating the cave. Jire also needs M's constant communication. Mm-hmm. And later in the book, Jire starts to become delirious and she hallucinates the dead cavers. And she also eventually welcomes the sight of those apparitions. She needs some kind of human contact. And I was wondering if you can expand on why social interaction is so vital for human survival. Yeah, so I have a background. I was very nearly a psychology major. I just didn't do my my final comps exams on psychology. I did anthropology instead. But I've done, you know, I've read some of the research, like um, the whole whole study where they ethically dubiously took, you know, baby monkeys and provided them with an option between a cold metal fake mom that had a bottle of milk and a warm cuddly one that had no milk and like the baby monkeys would starve because they would go to the one that was more lifelike and more comforting mm-hmm. um there's all sorts of things like that you know human beings are social animals we evolved to you know at the, even if we kind of go off and live on our own we would come back and meet with our community from time to time there's a whole bunch of the different structures of how we stay in contact and how we help each other and you know, if you take those away, say if you put someone in jail in solitary confinement, 
it's really, really not good for the human psyche. Um, it seems like something, you know, in our very individual society, we say, oh, yeah, I'll just walk into the woods. I'll never see anyone again. It'll be great. But, you know, you, you start to have certain breakdowns of emotional regulation and feelings of safety when you, you know, don't make eye contact with other people, when you don't have any kind of physical touch in your life. It can really start to cause problems and exacerbate existing problems, which is what I was mostly going for with Jire. And Jire in particular, she spent most of her life isolating herself. She doesn't have a great support system on, on the surface. You know, she doesn't have a network of, of friends. She doesn't have family, really, that's waiting for her to come back. And so I think some, I think Jire in particular underestimates the strain that being alone is going to put her under. And so she's really not prepared especially when it's, it's not, okay, she has a rotating crew up top who's talking to her over the radio every day. It's one person who, that, that, is her, that is her one person. If she doesn't have that one person, she is absolutely alone. She can't even touch her own skin to self-soothe. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it can start distorting your perception of reality because it's a basic human need. And just like food, just like sleep, if it's not met, things start to break down. Yeah. You know, speaking of psychology, the further I got into your book when I was reading it, it really became a psychological thriller. At times, um, you know, I had a question, Jire's reality. I read <laughs> as she struggles with her suit because it's a closed system among other systems in the novel. Jire spends a lot of time trying to open these systems. Do you see life <laughs> as somewhat solipsistic? And do you think that breaking the systems of control in our lives is detrimental? And then also... Do you think you can expand on the relationship between physical senses and the psych and how that relationship can shape or distort reality? Yeah, and, and they kind of go together because Jire's um, views on life are absolutely not my own. Uh, she has a very biased understanding of her world based on the systems that she's a part of. Um, I personally, you know, I, I'm a very, I think the world is built on webs of connection and you know, change is always possible and can be good or bad. And um, but Jire has spent her whole life in a in a in a family situation and in a um, a psychological situation of her own, her own sort of drive for revenge that has made her very cynical. Um, and she has reason to be. Her world is not a safe place. It's not a happy place. But she takes it to the extreme a lot. Um, and, you know, her risks, the risks she's taking to, to break the cycles that she's in, you know, she's doing it in a sort of absolutist way of if I get this job and I get this paycheck, then I will absolutely feel better. Like, I will fix everything. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if, if I break my suit, then it's for a good reason because I, you know, I'm confident in my reality. Even, you know, as you said, we're watching her, we're, we're becoming less confident than she's aware of her reality. Yeah. Um, they don't always pay off the way she hopes, but I think that all of those steps that she takes, the fact that she is trying to exert some kind of measure of control on her environment is the important part, is that she's not passively accepting, you know, okay, everything's terrible, it's not worth changing. She's going, everything's terrible, I'm getting myself out. Even though she's not going, I'm going to fix it for others. So in that in that sense, Jaira is very solipsistic. It is all about her. She really doesn't care about anybody else. But, you know, on a on a grander scale, I like to think that even though she seems to have that viewpoint, the book critiques that by the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and going back to her biases, it's the same thing that causes the psychological horror of the book. You know, Jaira 
has, and everybody has, limitations in how they view the world around them. You can't actually ever know objective reality, especially as a human being. We have tons of internal inherent biases. We have limited sensory perception. You know, we have to design tools to, you know, look at what color things are when they're outside of the wavelength spectrum that we can actually see with our eyes. We, we don't get a full picture of the world, and that's further constrained by systems that we're a part of and then by our own experiences, by our own senses, by our own bodies, and by our own psychological states. It's sort of a nesting doll of, you know, how much of the world are you cut off from perceiving at any one time? But the problem, you know, the, we, we want to believe that, okay, we can eventually achieve a perfect understanding of the system we're in, of the world we're in, the setting. And I think that that's less interesting, that drive to fully understand, even though I, I personally have that as well. It's more important and more interesting to look at, okay, given what we can perceive, what choices are we going to make based on that? Mm. So Jire, as you said, you know, her suit cuts off a lot of her senses, and it provides workarounds. You know, she has she, she's not seeing via visible light. She's seeing based on sonar that is being reconstructed by a computer that then get and that information gets returned to her suit so she's seeing on a little bit of a lag the computer makes assumptions and can actually and does hide things from her because there's that there's that distance from the actual perception gyre can't taste things she can't smell things she can't touch things directly so she's having to construct her understanding of the world based on what she already assumes to be true and what new information she gets over the course of the book and you add into that the psychological strain and, you know, stress-based hallucinations and potentially chemically-induced hallucinations via some great um, mushroom spores. And she, we can't tell if what she's re- basically reporting to us by way of the narrative is accurate. And there's a, there's a trick that I did. Um, I, I wrote it in third person just because that's what's comfortable for me and it seemed to work for the story. But it adds this additional layer of horror because we've all been sort of trained to trust third-person narration as objective. Um, it's, it's maybe the character is, it isn't seeing everything, but the narration, even if it's not omniscient, is still reporting the truth more than a first-person narrator. Yeah, you're not a, there's, expecting, some, there's some distance there for sure. Yeah, right? you're yeah. not expecting an unreliable narrator in third-person yeah. <laughs> because who's the third person? Right, exactly. Um, but because I focus it so tightly on Jire and, and I'm making you only get information from what Jire is perceiving and assuming, there are certain times where, you know, when M talks, she's reporting something completely different than what you just read happened. And you're sitting there going, but the book wrote Jire saying, I'm, I'm going to climb up. But M is saying, climb down, and I have no way to verify right. right. And it, it unsettles the reader just the way Jire's unsettled. Um, because... Yeah, it, it was it was really fun to play with the, the various levels of distance between each step in analyzing and perceiving reality and what happens when those break down. Yeah, and then on top of not being able to trust Jire, if she was hallucinating or whatever, you couldn't trust M either because she lied all the time. <laughs> right. So yeah. yeah, that was that was I liked both of them because you couldn't really trust either of them as a reader. <laughs> What made the book so interesting? You like you weren't sure what was real, what was not. Yeah. So, you know, touching back on Jire and like her negative outlook on humanity, um, <laughs> I just thought she was interesting, like how she describes her planet. You know, Cassandra is like basically this world of survival of the fittest, 
and you mm-hmm. know how the good are basically either die or leave um and then whoever's left they just they do what they need to survive um and so like you know her perception of humans basically sad nasty and selfish creatures and they like to take advantage of others you know i think that's really exemplified in m's character when she basically realizes all the lives she's manipulated you know eventually mm-hmm. and um so I just, using this view of humanity, just wanted to see your thoughts on, you know, when relating it to the people closest to us, uh, should we be holding them accountable for their behavior or, you know, do we condone that as human nature? Yeah, so I I feel like um, accountability is incredibly important, but a part of accountability is also um, when it's someone that you have an ongoing relationship with, obviously this, this doesn't apply to say war criminals. I think there's a little bit, more yeah, right. on there. <laughs> but, but in terms of like, you know, in terms of Jire and M or in terms of my relationships with various people in my life, I find that it's really helpful to try and understand what led to that moment. Um, because again, our choices are inherently constrained by the systems that we're a part of and the way that we perceive the world. And now sometimes the ways that we perceive the world, that's a choice. Um, yeah. <laughs> and sometimes it's not. Right. So it, it's, it's accountability is also not the same as, or the opposite of forgiveness, I feel like. And our gyre by the end of the book, and, I, it's, and I, I'm always you know nervous when people get to the end of the book to, to see if they think that, that I land, I threaded the needle on this, is that M absolutely did horrible things. Mm-hmm. But also... There's a, there's a level of uncertainty whether, you know, a lot of, so M, a lot of people that she sent down there, more than the average died. But there doesn't seem to be any actual reason for that that's based on M. The only problem is that she kept sending people. Yeah. But at the same time, she lives on a world and in a system, in a society, where this is a normal part of society. She's not like kidnapping people to hunt them on her manor grounds or something. You know, she's saying, I have a job. Will you take the job? And if people, you know, if people were to, you know, if Jire didn't do her due diligence at the beginning, that's not to say this is Jire's fault that she got into the situation, but it is to say that, you know, there are, there are choices that everyone in the situation is making that are leading to these really nasty interactions and combinations. And the biggest thing is that I didn't want Jire to forgive or absolve M of anything that M did to anybody but Jire because Jire doesn't have the all the information and she doesn't have the right to do that for mm-hmm. other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, at the end, can look at M and say, okay, you screwed up. You know you screwed up. You're not going to do it again. I have a way to make sure you don't do it again but I don't want to walk away from you because we've been through this crucible and whether it's healthy or not, you're the only person who understands what just happened. The other part of that though, is that Jire has, you know, she chooses to, to take the, take the extra step. And this is not something that I think anybody owes the person who has wronged them, but Jire takes a step to say, okay, you're going to basically do these reparations to me. And you're not just going to sit there going, Oh, I, everything I did was horrible. Everything is, I could never be forgiven. Da, 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 da. No, M has to keep going and make amends moving forward um she can't just do the same thing that she's been doing being stuck in the past all over again with jotter right right (laughs) because that doesn't help anybody and her hands aren't completely clean either i mean she conned her way into the job right 
the whole yeah, surgery. She, and, and, and she she did sign the contract and followed the letter of the contract yeah. technically. Yeah. You know, that's not all, you know, contracts are not unbiased. Contracts are not. Right, right. You know, um, you know they're, they're not um, unquestionable. But, you know, I, I really tried to make it as clear as possible that this is unfortunately just an exaggerated instance of what is going on to everybody in this society. Um, that, you know, that no one, nobody who runs a caving expedition has clean hands and people who choose to go into that line of work, they do it because of economic necessity, but they also do it because the economic necessity in their mind, the, the benefit outweighs the risk, at least for, you know, however long they're planning to do it. You know, Jire is probably not the first person to save up money to get her, her intestines rerouted so that she looks like she's gone on previous caving expeditions, right. you know, so she was able to find someone to do that right. So there's an industry based on the industry base, and it's it's nested down into this. You know, these people are doing what they think it, it was, you know, think it's necessary for them to survive. The people at the bottom may be more correct in thinking that that's what they need to do to survive. You know, and probably doesn't need to run a big mining corporation where she's, or you know, a company where she's putting people at risk in order to survive. Right. <laughs> she's doing it for other reasons. Right. But. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting kind of nasty um, tangle of consent issues and, you know, can things be forgiven? And in this case, I, I sided with, I think this character would would forgive this other character. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I want to really stress that Jire and them both have went through some pretty intense trauma and have very weird, uh, strange ways of interpreting the world. Mm-hmm. And that's a do not take this as this is how you should always forgive your abuser. <laughs> because right. I think and would actually understand the definition and absolutely qualifies. And it's very valid to say, you know, I'm just going to walk away from that and, and never come back because I don't benefit at all from staying near this person. Yeah, she definitely goes through a lot physically and mentally. <laughs> um, and I just, I wanted to touch on, you know, the breakdown of Jaya's psyche and how she struggles between her reality and that her perception of that. You know, there are moments where she questions whether what she sees or hears is real or if it's a hallucination, you know, like the humming or the presence of a salty and the other cavers. And, you mm-hmm. know, we have that more stress that's added when she's presented with, you know, real environmental dangers like the tunneler or limited resources and environmental threats. And so with these combined conflict of external and internal factors, uh, you know, it puts her in a distressing situation, and I just want to know what was your process at fleshing out that mental instability. So I reached, I pulled from a lot of things. Um, I've, I've personally been in not in anywhere near the amount of danger that Jire is in, but I've been in extremely um, prolonged periods of anxiety that have led to some of the. I've experienced some of the things that Jire has, like you know, seeing what you think is somebody's you know, somebody in the water, you know, somebody, so a shadow somewhere that if a person was actually there it would be very, very bad, either for you or for that person. Like, <laughs> I would see, uh, I'd be walking home from work in the evening, and I think I would see animals darting into the road or, like, bodies lying under cars, and nothing was there. It was my brain over-interpreting patterns. But um, the biggest thing when I was actually constructing Jire's sort of descent into, um, into psychological distress was I, I pinpointed what made Jire feel safe and what does she assume about her world and what does she rely on about herself and her world? And that leads to figuring out what specifically can really 
set off some cascade of horrible decision-making or intense distress um, because those things that make her feel safe are also her biggest weaknesses if you threaten them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a level, too, of uh, when you're writing horror, it's, okay, what would be really cool to put here? Right. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't go away, even <laughs> if you're going for realism. Is you're like, okay, what if this happened in a movie, say? Like, what would be a great jump scare right here? So you get scenes like Jire when she's alone, looking back and thinking that she sees Meixiang walking out of the corridor she just came through, but it might be an artifact of her computer, but it might not be. But also, the per- it's, you know, the first person she may or may not have seen, but she doesn't look like a person because her sonar reconstruction doesn't do color. Mm-hmm. So she's she looks the same as the rock around her, except that she has a face, but she's been dead for, for years. <laughs> right. And, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, those those moments of having a new, new kind of stimulus to set off a, a new freakout, those were largely based around what would be super cool right here. But they were also targeted, you know, it wouldn't make any sense, for instance, for Jire to see something horrific involving a child. We ha- I haven't established that Jire has any, really spends any time at all thinking about children except for herself yeah. as a child. Um, and, you know, there are certain things that, you know, okay, yeah, in, in the abstract, these are scary, but in the specific story, they don't really pack any kind of punch and they don't drive a further development in, in Jire's mental state because they're not relevant to her. You know, with Jire and M, both of these characters have similarities, um, you know, such as their parental abandonment at a young age, you know, and mm-hmm. I really like how it molds them into the people they are eventually in the novel. Um, and I think it ends up having them share this inability to move on, you know, from the past and, mm-hmm. you know, how Jire works as a caver so that she can eventually make money and leave Cassandra V and, you know, M works so hard to perfect these caver suits technology so she can send more people down and you know so both characters are searching for answers and you know they're unsure of what they're going to do once they find out you know what they're looking for Mm -hmm. and so at the end of the novel I like how you make them decide if they have to be swallowed up by their obsession basically or if they accept what they've been given and they grow from it um, mm-hmm. And so I was wondering what advice you would give your characters or, you know, even anybody who you know, is trying to move on from like a tormented past. So, um, I, for this, I'm going to draw on actual life stuff because uh, my mom died when I was nine. Surprise. Tyra and M are based on mm-hmm. a very specific part of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I actually responded very differently to how Jire and M did. Jire and M, like you said, both became obsessed with it and structured their entire life around it, whereas I kind of pretended it had never happened. I just sort of went, oh, I never had a mom, and I just kept going on with my life until I hit about college, and then it started sneaking back in, and you know, I would just have moments of just intense grief and also anger because I was like, well, it's been over 10 years. Why is this happening now? Mm-hmm. And so I, my advice kind of boils down to it, that loss is going to be there for the rest of your life. It's it's your roommate. It's never moving out. But in Jair and M's case, it doesn't own you. And in my case, you know, it is still there. It's this awareness that it's there, but it's not the only thing. It's not nothing. It's not infinity. It's, it's somewhere in the middle. So you have to kind of practice acknowledging it, going, yeah, that shitty thing happened. Sorry, I used one of those seven words. <laughs> that, that, that horrible thing happened. And now... And that's true. It's a true thing about your life. And that's okay. 
Um, and then you also look around at what else you have going on in your life and you go, this is also true about my life. This is also true. And all of these things can be true at once. And the particular combination of these things, both horrible things that I don't want to be true about myself that are, and great things that I, I wish I could share with the person I've lost, these great parts about myself, and just the, the kind of neutral stuff. All of that is true, and if you take away any part of that, you're not who you are anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, if you ignore any part of that, you don't change, and you, or you think you're not changing. And the longer you're not, you think you're not changing, I, I feel like the more you're... You know, being static is not a great thing. Um, being static gets you stuck in loops and, and makes it so that you sort of start overlooking things. Um, in, in an earlier draft, you, all, you guys also sent me a question about, you know, the actual experience of Gyre and M, or Gyre moving through the cave and Gyre and M sort of being forced to physically confront death. And um, the biggest thing that the most important part of that is that M in particular is forced to confront death. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an, there's actually a, you know, a specific scene where during, you know, after they've discovered the bodies of, um, Jack, uh, M's father and his, and his fellow cavers that they, that Gyre makes, um, look at them, you know, to, to turn about sort of using the, the suit system is that she parks herself, she lays on all the bodies, she kneels in front of them. And she just looks at them and she's like, you know, M, please, you know, you also need to look and it's going to suck. And part of that is because M has gotten so numb, even though her life is built around this grief, she's almost not feeling it anymore. She's just performing it. And, you know, down to every person that she leads into that cave who doesn't come back out again, who she's, you know, on the radio with as they die, she's hurt by it. And it's traumatic, but she's also going, well, that's just the way it is. And she's not taking any steps to change it mm-hmm. because she's gotten so used to this definition of herself that is, you know, I am the woman whose mother died and I or went back into the cave and I'm never going to be anything else. And, you know, yeah, she might have this great company that she's developing on the side, but like there's this core part of her that is just the same scared, grieving girl that she was just with more money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like, and, uh, um, yeah. oh, sorry. Um, no, go ahead. It's kind of like that M's dead too, like right right along with all those cavers, because she's she's like you said she's stagnant. She's not actually living her life. She's just playing a role. Yeah, yeah. In a, in a lot of ghost stories, a lot of haunted house stories, the ghost is sort of unconsciously repeating the same horrible moment of their life over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's actually a ghost and not say a demon, like in The Conjuring. Um, but one of one of the distinguishing things of how you know we think of ghosts is that they are these people who are stuck at the moment of their death. Um, there's a great um, horror movie that Netflix produced called "I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House." It's pure atmosphere. It's it's a very interesting ghost story with very little dialogue, and movie starts with the main character, who's pretty much the only character in the entire movie, saying. You know, I can't remember. I, I think she says, like, I'm 28. I will never be 29. Or so I can't remember her exact age. And she also says, you know, it's it's said that a ghost is always looking towards the moment of their death but cannot see it. Like, they're always trying to figure out what happened to them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, everyone else sees what happened to them in the haunting, but they don't see it. And so they reset and they do it again and again mm-hmm. and again. And, yeah, so, so M is definitely, I would say she definitely, I've never thought of her as a ghost before, but I think that's spot on. And I think, too, after she... 
finally confronts like the dead bodies and she looks at it. Uh, that's where some of my favorite moments from her started to happen. Like when she was listing off the names of all of the cavers that just really humanized mm-hmm. her for me. And I feel like after she looked at the bodies and like had that moment where she left cause she was crying and I, I don't know. I think I, that was a really strong moment for me just because I felt like she was actually like a human all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, so kind of returning back to research, and you talked a little bit about psychology. Um, the sci-fi genre in particular is always pretty daunting to me because it seems like you have to do a lot of research to make it your story seem believable. Um, and in your book, you go into details about mining, climbing, um, cave exploration, and also like the mechanics of the suit and bodily functions and medicine and things like that. And I was just wondering what kind of research you had to do to include that in your book and how do you make non-believable things in sci-fi more believable? I think she wants to know, are you a spelunker? (laughs) (laughs) I am not. I did not go in caves. I finished one and I walked right back out. Um, Yeah, so uh, I actually share the same opinion. I get very intimidated writing sci-fi and fantasy because I feel like I can never research enough. I feel like, um, you know, I see these lists of other books that, like, author friends are are reading to do their research. I'm like, you're reading seven huge textbooks before you even start this project? I can't do that. Um, I'm much more of an eclectic person. I sort of pick up little things as I go and then eventually combine them. And when I combine them, I go and do, like, I double-check my research. Um, for this, though, I did the biggest part of, re- of piece of research that I did was absolutely on caving and cave layouts because, again, I don't go in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it's a very passionate group of people that love exploring caves. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very driven, um, and they really are particular about getting things right in fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I kind of don't want any of them to ever read the book because I'm sure I actually screwed up a lot. <laughs> but... Um, the, but the biggest thing was, you know, this entire book was going to take place in a cave. I had them be able to make that cave interesting the whole way through, so I had to co- I had to read about the sort of variation in in chamber structure and everything else. I needed to make it dangerous, and I wanted to make it dangerous in very um, very real world ways, as opposed as alongside the the weirder things I was adding. Uh, and I needed to sort of figure out, okay, how do you get one person down in a cave and keep them alive. Because, uh, spoiler, if you are going to go into a cave, don't do it alone. Um, <laughs> you should always take a buddy. If you go alone, you know, just like and it comes up with Jire a couple times, if you so much as sprain your ankle, how are you getting back out on your own? Right. right. Um, you know, because, you know, okay, the cave I went into, I could get back out because it was a lava tube and it had a level floor with a handrail. But if you're going into something like Jire is going into with a lot of um, climbing required a lot of extremely cold water, no food, um, a lot of tight squeezes, the, the risk of cave collapses. You really need and a team. giant monster <laughs> yeah. lurking. But I didn't, I didn't want to send a team down because um, I didn't want to have to write the dynamics of six people down there. I always knew that I wanted only two characters in this book. So that meant that I had to, and this is where the sci-fi element came in, I needed to figure out how I could do that. So I, I first you know, read all about caves. I read one book, honestly. I read. I added a second one later on, but I read one book and then did some internet research. Um, so I figured out like what 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 the caves were like, what capabilities a suit would need to have in order to just maneuver around the cave, and then I turned my attention to okay, well, how do you keep someone safe on their own? And that's how I figured out kind of the amount of 
um, control of the suit that M has on the surface because M is her backup human. You know, the team on the surface is usually the, it's the equivalent of the team that goes down with you if you actually go caving in real life. Um, and I needed to figure out how that intersected with the suit, and that very quickly made the suit that very contentious piece of consent technology mm-hmm. that it is. Um, and also, yeah, so you need to figure out, okay, so I don't, if I'm sending down this person alone, why am I doing it? And so I came up with the tunneler. I'm like, okay, if I'm sending down this person alone in this suit, what require, you know, how do you have to behave in the suit? So then I added, okay, so she can't open her, she can't build a fire. She's, she's not using light to look around. Um, too dangerous for her to open her face mask, potentially. Okay, so how is she eating? She can't cook food. <laughs> she can't open her face mask. Okay, she's getting a feeding tube. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and it just kind of, when it kind of just snowballed. I, I was trying to, every time I put in something that solved a problem, um, to, to let me tell the story I wanted, I looked for a way that that could specifically complicate the story in a way that was highly specific and highly personal to the main character so that, you know, I'm adding all these fantastical elements, but they're causing very easy-to-understand problems. And that's sort of how I I made that balance between, okay, this is sci-fi, but it's approachable sci-fi. It's not going to lose the reader. And the other thing is, especially because it's not just sci-fi, but it's horror, I didn't have unlimited pages to explain everything. The more you explain in a horror story, the less scary it is, which is part is you know part of the reason also why I chose such a limited perspective. You know, if you keep certain things unverifiable, if you if you don't explain every single thing that it could have possibly been, it gets scarier. So I couldn't go and like give you an entire technical manual on the suit, even though I had a lot of that information in my head. So instead, you know, I kept it like I said, very specific to what is going to cause gyre terrifying issues down the line. And that's the stuff that I established early on. And then the rest, if I could ignore it, I just left it off the page. I'll say as a foodie, (laughs) the the, uh, food cartridges were not, didn't seem very delicious (laughs) to me. There's a a science fiction and food podcast that I can't remember the name of, but Fran Wilde and Alia Gibbodar are on it. And I, I, really wish I could be on it, but I don't <laughs> think I can for this book, and no. even though I personally love food. Yeah. I don't think anyone wants to talk about feeding tubes and colostomies right now <laughs> on a food podcast. You're right. Um, maybe maybe my next piece, although that one I think has jellied eels in it, which I don't think anyone wants to talk about either. So apparently I, I am not, and I, well, I keep writing horror, and you don't want to give them good food. Right, right. <laughs> it's too comforting to the audience. Right, exactly. <laughs> my mind was also, like, blown when... She was like, I'm going to amputate my arm right now. Can you do it for me? And I was like, whoa, the suit can do that? <laughs> How but cool. It makes sense because, because it has to provide all medical care and, mm-hmm. and stabilization in order to try and get that person safely to the surface. So, you know, it goes along with the fact that she's got opioid painkillers in there. She's got anti-anxiety meds in there. She's got sedatives. She's got adrenaline. It also makes sense that in the event of a suit breach, that the suit can seal itself off. Yeah. Now that might mean that, you know, you know, okay, there's a, there's a crack in the leg and the leg piece just kind of grows back together, but it can also mean, okay, your entire arm's been crushed by a boulder. What do you do? <laughs> and, yeah. Um, yeah, like that, that's probably where it's maybe, it's interesting for me to like think about where it stretches believability the most part, part of it is I'm not sure really that her suit could be carrying all the stuff that I say it has and still be like maneuverable. 
but I since again I don't go into the like what's the volume of her backpack right. um, it it it's in that area where it's believable enough and it's important enough to believe it that most readers go cool I got it yeah yeah the fact that when it runs out of power she can't move right? yeah it's too heavy well that's burn. one of those things where I was like okay this is this is battery powered what happens when the batteries run out yeah. and then I went oh I think I've got like half of my plot here yeah right. <laughs> Because it's terrifying. Right. Um, so before I read this book, I actually found uh, it listed on a few LGBTQ plus sci-fi book lists to check out this summer. Um, mm-hmm. And so while representation in the media of any kind is important, I was wondering if you approach the book while you're writing it with the idea to include a relationship like this. Um, or if you had M and Jire chosen beforehand, and then you just kind of let them evolve into what they are. Um, and if not, how did you choose your two characters? Because you said you wanted two characters in the book, and how did it come down to like two young women around the same age? And instead of a man and a woman, I don't know if this is making mm-hmm. sense, but... <laughs> yeah. Um, so it wasn't like a conscious plan choice. Um, I think it's rather important to note at this point that I'm bisexual. So I wrote a relationship that was interesting and attractive to me because it was fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's really the, the basic basis of it. Uh, however, I didn't think it would ever get published. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was like, okay, well, it's, it's going to be stacked against me because it's two women and it's not a romance novel mm-hmm. and it's a two-character full-length that's my horror book. Like, I, that, at that, when I wrote it in, I started writing it in 2014, there wasn't a lot out there yet, but it appears I'm, like, just on the beginning of this this wave yeah. of, of a lot of um, really great queer representation, especially in sci-fi fantasy, and there, there's more work to go on some other areas. But it's been pretty great. But, yeah, I, I wrote what I was personally interested in. Um, I did, at some points, kind of think about, okay, what would happen if I changed something? So at one point, M was actually um, older than Jire, and Jire was a little bit older too, even. But they were, you know, M was more in her like late thirties, early forties. And actually, at that point, um, this was an early draft, and it was before I sold it. M was actually is old. Is old got out of the cave and was sending people back down, mm. basically. And um, and so then it was important. It was an interesting dynamic because this is a woman who came before Jire and who, who did the thing that Jire is now doing, mm-hmm. and actually knew what it was like. And therefore, isn't it even worse that she's sending people down like this? Mm-hmm. Um, I changed it actually because a friend recommended that I try it out as a YA novel because it had themes that were appropriate, and that involved, of course, I had to age down M, and that meant that suddenly M was is old and Lauren's daughter, and. That added a whole new dimension to it that even after I, you know, I looked at it and went, no, this is not YA. I'm not a YA author. I don't have those um, <laughs> intentions in my writing. I, I write for an adult audience. I left it because having, again, another level of remove from understanding the situation made it more interesting. Um, and so that, that ended with them. M still has to be older than Jire because M is more established in society, um, but I didn't make her as old um, because Jire actually makes more sense as a young woman. Because she, again, has not built those social structures. She's ambitious, but she has a lot of areas where 
she just hasn't developed yet um, because she hasn't had to. She's been so focused. And so she makes sense of being fairly young. M is now, I think I, I placed her like a, a just shy of 30. Um, but she's still sort of a wonder kid. And um, also, you know, hasn't had too long to really just be devastatingly static. Uh, it's bad enough, but it's not like, okay, she's 50 and she's never gotten over this. Um, so they're still young enough that, you know, I think anyone could change, but it, it, it is an easier leap of faith for some readers if, you know, they're younger and they're going to be making these big changes. Mm-hmm. Um, I did think about for a while, not not seriously, but I, not making Emma a guy seriously, but I did think about what would the dynamic be like, and it gets really scary really fast. Mm. If the person on the surface is <laughs> Yeah, enough. right. Um, and there's a throwaway line sort of near the beginning where Jire's like, well, at least Emma's a woman. Yeah. <laughs> because... Um, yeah, and could still have some really weird, kinky, power-based sexual assault. Yeah, right. Leanings, but it's, you know, if you think about this sort of situation where this is legal and this is normal, yeah, there's, there's a, it's not rare to find people who get into running expeditions because they get off on it. Yeah, and right. that adds this whole layer that, in my mind, you can't come back from, like, it's already questionable for some readers, and I think that's great that Jire and M end up together at the end. Um, I, you know, it's definitely not a healthy relationship, and I never wanted to present it as such. But in my mind, if Emma had been a man, you cannot make that a reasonable yeah, it's a really, thing it's to a, come to it's a, um, without, it's a really the, without the reader feeling like yeah. you betrayed Jire. Um, but yeah, because there's just, there's just an added level of really creepy, yeah. sexually charged nastiness. And then I also, this isn't in specifically the, the access you were talking about. Um, again, Emma used to be as old, and as old as white. And Jire is not. Hmm. And it took me a draft before I went, oh, that's not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it, it makes for an interesting story. There's definitely a story to be told there, but not by me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't have the perspective necessary to really delve into. You know, I already mentioned that there's a lot similar. You know, yes, this is, this is a volunt- semi-voluntary labor situation as opposed to a slavery situation, but there's some overlap, and it's like, okay, I don't. I, I am not the right person to touch that. So, you know, now M is not white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's still issues, but it's it's not as um, stark yeah. as it could have been. And so, you know, there there were little adjustments that I made throughout, and but mainly it's just because that's what I wanted to write about, and that's what interested me. Continuing on the relationship of M and Jire, there's there's a really unique character dynamic between them. Is that something that you like thought of on your own, or were you inspired by something? Um, also, if you were inspired, what were you, what or who inspired you? Um, and is that something you think about when you are writing? So, um, a large part of what inspired me was video games because it's very common that you have a disembodied female voice Mm -hmm. explaining how to play the game at the beginning. I told Amanda Um, this would make a good video game. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I played Portal, um, which has GLaDOS. I played the game called uh, Zombies Run, which is a running app where it's all told to you by people talking to you through your headset. Um, So that was definitely formative in terms of, like, feeling like it was a thing that I could pull off and that was interesting to me. Um, The biggest concern, though, that I had while doing that is how do I keep this interesting? Because, again, if you only have two characters and one of them isn't even in the same physical space, so they can't have physical interactions, really. I mean, I found a way around that. But generally speaking, they can't. It 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 makes sort of, and they're having this really prolonged, um, as this one reviewer said, essentially therapy session for the entire book. Mm-hmm. 
the sometimes the the progression of their relationship is very subtle and it was really hard to keep it from getting repetitive both to me and especially for the reader um so i had to keep changes happening that were interesting and meaningful even if at some point it looked like gyre was backsliding or we were treading the same ground it had to be from a, a new new angle in a way that we were interested in finding out yeah and i think for me as a reader you kind of go along with the relationship and you're you have a trust and then the trust is broken over and over again um yeah. but for me when i i it kind of made sense for them to at least remain friends or in contact at the end of the novel like some points I'm like is this going to end up as like a romance or what is going to happen are they going to like mm-hmm. live together um but when M was the one to pull Jire out at the end I think that was really um like her change and then they could start mm-hmm. over instead of Jire yeah. leaving um just the fact that she wanted to stay and M was able to pull her out of the situation made the yeah. relationship and, and M was willing to actually put herself down where she sent other people in order to do it yeah um Near the end of the novel, uh, M says um, that she's going to seal off the cave after the expedition is over, uh, essentially sealing sealing off the past. I think that's a, a phrase that you use. Um, when mm-hmm. I read this, I couldn't help thinking that the novel, that in the novel, like caving serves as a metaphor for delving into the past. Um, is that something you thought about when writing the book? Uh, and what... What, is, what does it say that Jire loses part of herself physically, her arm, um, as a result of that unearthing? So when I'm writing, I don't usually think of ter- think in terms of metaphors because then they get a little bit too heavy-handed. Mm-hmm. Um, the book was always about sort of death and grief and mourning, um, but the cave originally was just sort of a set piece mm-hmm. because it was interesting. But as I was revising you know, and having to justify, okay, why do they keep going back through certain areas? Some of that did come out of like, okay, you know, you're forced to sort of looping back around again and again, and your forward progress doesn't seem like forward progress, but ultimately it leads to a better understanding of what you've been through. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, and so, you know, making it into a straightforward path would have been less interesting plot wise, but also I think it would have, May it would be less thematically appropriate mm-hmm. because you know the journey is absolutely about kind of going through the past, laying it, you know, reordering it and laying it back to rest or attempting to reorder it. I don't really, you know, the cave's kind of in a mess of a state by the time Jire gets out of there. Um, and I hadn't actually thought about what it means for Jire to lose her arm in the process. Um, there's there's a great comic that circulates about you know fanfic writers or, or you know creators of you know. Someone, girl is standing in the shower washing her hair, and her eyes just open, and she goes, I'm going to break my O.C.'s legs, <laughs> O.C.'s being original characters. Yeah. And I had that moment in a draft where, like, originally, um, Jire's arm was just broken, and she couldn't use it. Mm-hmm. And then one time I got up, I'm like, I'm going to cut it off. <laughs> and it was because it was just fun, and it was interesting, and it was dramatic. Because it was fun. And, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was fun to write. Yeah. It, was, it was interesting to write Jire basically saying, take control of the suit to do this horrible thing to me. I demand it. And I'm going, I can't do it because you made me feel too guilty about everything I do. And Jared going, okay, listen to me. I'm telling you to do it. But, but looking at it through this lens of, you know, this is a journey through, through the past and through grief. The, the situation that causes Jire to have to cut her arm off 
is she thinks she sees M's mother and mm-hmm. is trying to force an interaction between M and her mother. That's actually not Shire's job or business. Right. Right. Um, you know, I mean, granted, it has been. It has been through this entire book. But it's this point where M just keeps going. There's nobody there. Like, what's going on? And Shire is so focused on trying to force this reconciliation and this salvation. And it doesn't really work out for her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think you can make an argument if you were, say, writing a paper on this in English class, which would be the coolest thing ever, um, <laughs> for this to get taught in a class somehow. But is um, that, that, yes, Jire and Emma are helping each other work through their, their various traumas, but you can't fix it for the other person. Mm-hmm. You can support and you can help provide the tools and you can be there for someone else. But, um, you know, diving in and fighting their monsters for them, you can get hurt. You can get seriously injured. I mean, hopefully not by getting your arm cut off, (laughs) but it's it's definitely a thing. You know, we we can't be the savior for another person. Right. Um, And then we always ask, the last question is always, do you have any advice for beginning writers? Um, To treat it as play. Um, I would highly recommend not going in thinking that, okay, I want to be published in the next five years or I, you know, anything else like that. Like it's, it's great to have goals, but not to lose sight of having fun because you learn more having fun. And honestly, you write more having fun mm-hmm. than you do being preoccupied by, um, deadlines and five-year plans and everything like that. And sometimes I forget that. And, uh, that's when my writing starts to suffer, but I didn't try to sell a book until I, you know, I wrote Luminous Dead when I was 24 and I'd been writing since I was 14, like actively, aggressively writing. Mm-hmm. And I didn't try and sell the Luminous Dead. And like I found an age, I started querying agents in 2016. Um, and all through that time and before I wrote Luminous Dead, I'd done NaNoWriMo a couple times. So I trained myself on just getting words down. I had done a lot of internet role-playing which taught me how um, to write for an audience mm-hmm. very directly. Like I would compose, you know, a two paragraph post going, I want to make my partner yell and leave their computer for a while. <laughs> like it, it, it really trains you that, that kind of stuff trains you on learning how to evoke a certain response from another reader. I wrote fan fiction, which helped me build skills while simultaneously, um, letting other stuff kind of be taken care of. So I didn't have to worry about, say, the world building, but I could focus on tone and dialogue or something like that. Um, And I also wrote for myself solo, and that just let me kind of develop my own voice and and what my interests were in storytelling. And, you know, during that, absolutely, you know, when I was a teenager, I absolutely wanted to be an author when I grew up. At college, I went, oh, that's not realistic, and I put it on hold for a while. But the biggest thing was just always having a variety of of writing that you enjoy kind of going in the background so that even if you're not actively working on a project that you are going to query, you're still building skills and you're doing it in a way that is sort of integrated into the rest of your life. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And that's our show for today. The Pub is produced at the University of Wisconsin Parkside from the studio at WIPZ 101.5 FM. You can tune in on Saturdays at noon to catch new episodes, and you can also find us on Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Or you can head over to our website at straylightmag.com for fiction, poetry, art, and of course, podcasts. 
Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for regular updates and new content. Until next time, thanks for listening to The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things books and publishing. Thank you.